Luke chapter 4, I don't have this text on the PowerPoint, but this came to me later and I put it here in the corner because I think I, I want to refer to it several times this morning. But this is the purpose of Jesus' coming and this is the purpose of the teaching we saw last week and the teaching we saw today. This is who Jesus is, what we're going to see today. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus stood up and He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is the era we are in right now. We are in the acceptable year of the Lord when God is extending kindness to all who will receive it because God uh, does justly, but what He really, really, really loves is mercy. And we are in this period of mercy. But it's interesting because when God does send justice, it's only for a moment, but His mercy abounds forever. Okay? This is the God we serve, and this is the purpose of this teaching today. Now, last week in the first half of Luke chapter 16, uh, Jesus gave us a teaching about a steward. It was a lesson on stewardship. But this steward had wasted his master's possessions. And we saw that the translation there was he had been recklessly extravagant with his master's stuff. And so from this teaching, we gleaned a number of truths. Let me just reiterate a few of those because today's teaching is Jesus building on that. Number one, everything we have, including our very beings, belongs to God. Did you hear that? I'd like you to read with me again Psalm 24.1. Let's read it together. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. So it all belongs to God and that makes us the stewards. We have been given the privilege and the responsibility of overseeing and enjoying God's stuff. But like the steward we saw last week, we've been found guilty of having been recklessly extravagant with His stuff and we will be called to give an account. That's just the reality of it. That's not my embellishment or some, some kind of a, 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 a mission I'm on. This is the Word of God that we are expounding on here. Now here's the test. The test for determining whether we are being recklessly extravagant with God's stuff or whether we're using it out of wisdom boils down to this. Are we using what has been entrusted into our care to selfishly build our own personal temporal kingdoms or are we using His stuff for His eternal glory which is largely expressed in the way we show kindness to other people out of the abundance that God has given to us. Wow. Maybe we should breathe a little bit. You look like you stopped breathing. You're turning blue. Can you say glory to God? Can you say it like you're excited about it? (laughs) Not too sure. Well, the vast sum of last week's message boiled down to this. Because we've been recklessly extravagant. We can't change our past, but we can prepare 
for our futures. We cannot change our past, the fact that we've been recklessly extravagant with God's stuff, but we can prepare for our futures by making sure that we're extending the same kind of goodness, the same kind of kindness, the same kind of grace to other people around us that we so desperately need our, our Heavenly Father to show to us. That's really what it boils down to. And when Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor and all of these things, it's because He wants to live that mission out. Not only in Himself, but by the power of the Spirit, He wants to live that mission out in and through us. So today's teaching builds off what we saw last week. Remember the response of the Pharisees to this teaching, though, in verse 14. It says, Jesus speaking, said the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. But the problem for the Pharisees boils down very simply to this, that they saw their wealth as being a personal blessing from God and they saw other people's poverty as being a very personal punishment from God. But what they couldn't see was that neither of those were true because the reality is all we have is given to us as a trust by God to be used for His eternal glory and to be used for blessing others that they too might know the life that we have in Christ Jesus. And that's what it's all about. But there's a second application here and that is this because what this says is that poor people and oppressed people and people in hardships and difficulties become our opportunities to invest in our tomorrows. That's shrewdness. Poor people and oppressed people become opportunities to invest in our tomorrows by us extending to them the same kind of kindness that we so desperately need from our Heavenly Father. That's really what it's about. But our tendency is to think, I'm blessed. I'm American. I must somehow deserve it. And those people over there, they must be getting what they got too. And it creates this chasm that we can't even begin to see the, the need. So the main intent of this teaching that we're seeing, that we're in the midst of, last week's teaching of Jesus, this week's teaching of Jesus, is a call for us to move from a self centeredness that motivates us to think about how we're going to build our personal temporal kingdoms to a heart that says, how do I use everything that has been given into my care for the glory of God? And it shoots down in what we saw in verse 15 last week where, where Jesus says this. He says, what is highly valued among men, this idea, I'm blessed and you're not, this is detestable in God's that's what Jesus said. Now, <clears throat> last week I said to you, and it's largely based on the teaching we're going to get today, because I have a hard time imagining that today's teaching uh, could be anything but a parable. But there's two problems with that. The first is, typically when Jesus gives a parable, He lets us know that He's going to give us a parable. He says, this is a parable. Here's a parable. He doesn't do that here. The second thing is that Jesus never, ever names the characters in his parables. And in today's parable, he tells us the name of one of the persons, the poor man, is Lazarus. So could it be that 
what we're reading today, that this teaching today is actually a literal event that has taken place and Jesus is aware of it. Oh my goodness. Because when you're going to see it, you won't want to believe it. So we pick it up, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. And I was told this morning that the purple dye came from snails. You wonder how many snails it took to make his robe purple. But purple was a sign of royalty. Uh, Personally, I'm fine with a few less snails in the world. But anyway, this guy is dressed as royalty. And fine linen and lived in luxury every day. He didn't know anything else but luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked the sores. So we'll stop right there. Just comment a little bit because here we have a rich man who the religious elite would have looked at and said, he is really blessed by God. There's the image of what it looks like. And we have this poor beggar who would have been happy just to have gotten what the dogs were getting. And the the religious elite would have looked at him and thought he's getting what he deserves. He's getting punishment of God for whatever reason. But the reality is that this poor man Lazarus was an opportunity for this rich man to invest in his tomorrow. It's an opportunity to miss, but the chasm is too great. I'm among the haves. He's among the have-nots. The sores indicate that he has leprosy, so he's unclean. So I have every right to stay away from him because of his uncleanness. And I can't see him because the chasm is too great, yet he's laying right there at his gate, at the rich man's gate. The fact that the Rich that this uh, that Lazarus was laid at the gate would suggest that he's crippled because uh, somebody had to place him there. The crumbs that are falling from the wealthy man's table, uh, this is food for the dogs. We know that because of history at this time. Oftentimes people ate outside. Dogs would come and eat the crumbs. Uh, Lazarus would love to have what the dogs ha- have have gotten here. But the fact is, the only kindness that Lazarus receives is from the dogs. Jesus said, even the dogs, even the dogs had the wherewithal to respond to this man in a healing fashion because that's what animals do when they're wounded. They lick their wounds, which the salt helps to bring healing. And even the dogs responded. And what a tragic expression when dogs are showing a better job with compassion than are the human beings that are involved in the situation. Now, I have to just stop right now because I'm getting the sense that I'm getting a little bit preachy here and I just need you to be aware that I don't have anything on you all. That whatever this teaching is doing with you, it's doing with me as well. Okay? We're, we're, we're in the same boat, you know? The word fellowship has been uh, translated two fellows in the same ship. Okay? <laughs> so hopefully the ship's floating well because we're in the same boat together. The next thing, the fact that this man was laid at the rich man's gate also suggests that this is a need that should have been easily recognized. He was laid at his gate. 
And, and, and what Jesus is doing right here is he's challenging all of us to ask the question, what are the obvious needs that are there before us continually that we're missing because of this chasm, that we can't see them? I don't know about you, but man, constantly, every day, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've just gotten rid of one of our phone lines, our home phone line, because it seemed like all we ever got on that line was solicitation for money. Now I'm wondering if I should get rid of my mailbox because, you know, every day Valerie and I go out there to look for the check. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's our joke. You know, did we get the check today? What, what check is that? Well, Ed McMahon's publisher's clearinghouse check, even though we never sign up for that stupid thing. Did that check come? You know, are we secure forever? And what do we get instead? But, you know, probably five, six, seven, eight requests for more money. But Jesus says, hey, don't worry about all the needs in the world. Just ask yourself the question, what are the needs that have been laid at my gate? And start there. I I appreciate, you know, recently when we sent some folks to Haiti and and other places of the world, that there's typically someone who will say, but what are we doing for the hurricane victims on the East Coast? What are we doing for the tornado victims in the South? And and so it's, it's posing the question, start at home. What are the needs that have been laid? at your gate. And that's good application, asking that question. Verse 22, going on with the teaching. The time came when the beggar Lazarus died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So just notice there that it doesn't say that this poor man was buried. Okay, Historians will tell us that a proper burial was really a rich man's luxury that the very, very extreme poor would have simply been thrown into a place called Gehenna, which is a a town dump located outside the town where fires are constantly burning so that these bodies would be consumed right along with the refuse. But the good news is, I know that sounds horrid, the good news is that wasn't the end of Lazarus' story because we see right here that angels came and carried him into the bosom of Abraham. I love that. In fact, it's an indication that that's the way we find ourselves coming to the Father's throne. In fact, here's one related to the second coming. This is uh, Mark chapter 13. Jesus is teaching about the second coming when he says this, At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Anybody looking forward to that day? Huh? Yeah. And he will send his angels... And gather his elect from the four winds. Did you hear that? He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So it looks like we too are going to enjoy the privilege of being ushered into the very presence and throne room of God. That'll be a fun ride. Huh? I hope that my angel wants to pull a few G's along the way because I'd like that head rush as we get to, to heaven here. But Lazarus being taken to to Abraham's side is really uh, putting it in the face of these religious elite who think that they're the haves and that guys like Lazarus are the have-nots because what he's saying in this is that it's Lazarus who gets the red carpet treatment and finds himself in the royal presence that all these wealthy people thought was theirs. And Jesus is putting him in a posture where you better think again because you know what? You can't do anything about your past. What are you doing about your future? Here's an opportunity and you can't even see it. Verse 23 going on. In hell, 
where this rich man was tormented, and it mentions this four times. I didn't put it there. We just have to face the fact it's there. This rich man, going on, looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. He didn't have pity on Lazarus, but look at him now. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Boy, just, just the tip of the finger would have been a good start for him right here. If it's all he asked for, he didn't ask for a cup of water. Just have him dip the tip of his finger in water and have him bring this. The irony here is that we have this rich man who is rich on earth, who thought that he got a blessing by God because he deserved it, finding himself in eternal suffering. And we have this poor guy who the religious elite would have thought got exactly what he deserved on earth because he was experiencing God's cursing. And we find their situations here being totally switched. But I think we need to be clear. This rich guy isn't suffering because he was rich. He's suffering because he failed to come to that humble place of recognizing while he could not do anything about his past, he could prepare for his future. That's what's really happening right here. But the chasm is too great. I am among the haves. They are among the have-nots. Surely I've done something to deserve what I have and they've deserved something. they've done something to deserve what they have. Everything that has been given to us has been given to us by God as a trust. Measured by, are we using it to build our own personal temporal kingdoms that will be consumed by fire, or are we using it for His eternal purposes and His eternal glory? This isn't about an offering. This isn't about what the church wants. This is about you and God, and me and God. And we have to face this truth. How much we have isn't nearly as important as what we're doing with it. Are we being wise and shrewd, investing in our futures? Are we being foolish, spending it now instead of investing it in tomorrow? So the application here, do I selfishly hoard what I have or am I using it to glorify God in His eternal purposes? Amen. Now, it's interesting Because the wording in verse 23 suggests that people in heaven can see what's going on in hell. Now, that doesn't sound like heaven to me at all. I mean, does it to you? I mean, would you like in heaven to be able to see the suffering of others? Yeah, well, the problem is is the way the words are translated. And and too often, this this word that we see here is is translated hell uh, when... When, when really, it's, it's, that's not the word. The word that's being used here is the word Hades. And, and Hades here is a temporary place. It's believed it has two sides. It has a side for those who are going to be in heaven one day and those who are going to be in hell one day. But it's a place where we await the throne room where we stand before Jesus and He judges us based on what we did and didn't do. That's not a works gospel. That's a gospel of dependence, Okay. You're not going to earn your way into heaven, but it's out of God working in us that we have anything good to present to Him. So it's about the surrendered 
life right here. So this place, Hades. Now I want you to see a picture of the two described in the Bible as they work together. This is Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. Look at this. You see both places here. So this is after the horrors of the tribulation are over. This is uh, right, you know, before we enter paradise forever, okay? So this is Revelation chapter 20. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see the difference there? Hades thrown into the lake of fire. It's Hades' end right here. Lake of fire, that's the hell that we think of. The lake of fire is the second death. We each must go through this process hopefully dying once and then entering into eternity. But this is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So I show that to you because at the point where Jesus is bringing us in his teaching, these two men are not in hell. They're in this temporary place. And evidently there, there's some interaction that can take place. But did you notice Lazarus isn't in on the discussion? I mean, there's no evidence given here that he has any clue what's going on. But instead, Abraham has this unique privilege of being able to communicate. And he's representing uh, Lazarus in this situation. Do you see that? Yeah, very good. All right, this is the Word of God. Okay, now, this raises a very important question for some of you that needs to be answered right now. And that is the question, how could a loving God allow such a place as hell to exist, let alone how could he ever send anybody to such a place? Okay, This is the question on the floor, and frankly, we don't even like the idea of hell. A recent poll shows that 65% of Americans, while they believe there is a literal hell, only 3% would say there's any possibility of them ever going there. Okay? Even in our religious institutions, professors who are training people for ministry are trying to give up any thought of heaven and hell because they can't handle it. Here's a quote from uh, Gordon Kaufman, Harvard Divinity School. He said this, The thinking of Americans has gone through a transformation. We can no longer take seriously the subjects of heaven and hell. That's right. That's what's being taught. But do you know there's over 600 references in the Bible to heaven and hell? So what do we do with that? I mean, here's an idea. Let's form a small group. And and this small group's purpose is to get together to study the Bible to seek and destroy any evidence of heaven and hell. All right? So we're reading it. Oh, there's one. Let's tear out that page. Huh? Oh, there's another one. Let's tear out that page because we want to get rid of any reference to the subject of hell. But to do that, you have to throw out the whole Bible because now all of a sudden we have no standard. Okay, I got to let you in on a little secret. I had a meeting with one of these guys this week because I was concerned about something. It's interesting to me that there are six churches in town that have amazing fellowship together. Okay, if you want to know what those churches are, I'll tell you, we're a part of this fellowship. And the thing we have in common is the supremacy of Jesus Christ 
and the authority of this book. But there's another group in town that is frustrated that we have two pastors groups. This group can't even pull off a meeting. Nobody comes. They tried to define what their common ground is and nobody could agree. And they want us to give up the EMA, which is the Evangelical Ministerial Alliance, to join them because they don't want to be associated with anything called evangelical. You see the problem here? When you get rid of the standard of truth, there's no common ground with which to unite. And everybody's going to do what's right in their own eyes. And all you have is a fragmented church that's powerless in a very real world. Now, can I be honest with you? There's much about evangelicalism that I have trouble with. But have you noticed how this pastor hammers against legalism over and over and over again? Because my observation has been that we can hit all the right keys that the church says we're supposed to be doing and leave this place and not be loving toward a single soul. And so I'm more interested in the greater work that produces a capacity to love. Okay, now that's nowhere here, uh, but that's just the way it goes. We've already seen Revelation 20. Here's one more reference to heaven and hell. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Can't do anything about it. That's the Word of God. But here's what you need to understand. How could a loving God ever allow such a place as hell to exist, let alone ever send somebody there? That is the biggest lie ever written. Because the truth is, the God that we serve, the God and Creator of the universe, the God of all love and compassion, and the God that we serve has never sent a single soul to hell. In fact, the God that we serve, our great and loving Heavenly Father, who is great in compassion and abounding in love, has done everything short of taking away our free will and making us all puppets. He has done everything in His power to make sure that we never go to hell, even to the place of giving His very best, His finest, His very own Son, who was spotless and without sin, to take our sin upon Himself and then to go to the, to the grave as a sacrificial lamb to cover us so that we would never have to fear a place called death and hell and punishment and all the things that the devil would love for you to enjoy. Okay? And that's, this is just honoring the Word of God. God has never sent anyone to hell, but people choose to go to hell by saying, I'm going to do what I want to do because nothing I have is anybody else's. It's mine. I'm going to do what I want with it. And I'm certainly not going to help anybody because I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. You see what's going on here? It's all about my glory and it's not about the glory of the Father. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who belong to it. Wisdom says, how do I invest what I have as though it's God's Himself? Foolishness says, I've got to build my personal temporal kingdom because there's too much fun to be had before I get old. Eat, drink, and be merry because we know not what tomorrow may bring. Oh my goodness. We're going to be here a while, folks. 
I am not a grumpy old man, and I don't have a vendetta against anybody. Okay? I'm, I'm just a vessel, and, and this is the Word of God. Chasm. I have, they don't have. And it sure feels good to be riding the top of the wave. The statement, we're afraid of what could happen because we don't want to give up our lifestyle. In other words, we like our nicer neighborhood and we certainly don't want to downgrade to the point where we have to live with those other people. Chasms. Wow. Verse 25, Jesus continues. Oh, man. I just got to cry a minute because, oh, man. Have mercy on us, Lord. Thank you for your great kindness. Help us to be like you, Lord. Fill us with your spirit because left to ourselves, we're just selfish. We want to be like you, selfless. We're Even though you were God, you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbled yourself and became a servant even to the point of death. Thank you, Lord, for serving us in this way. Verse 25, But Abraham replied, talking to the rich man, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us, between us and you, a great chasm. Isn't that interesting? There was a chasm that kept him from seeing the need. Now he's facing a chasm. A great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Wealth is, is not some kind of assurance that you're going to end up in hell. Poverty is not some kind of assurance that you're going to end up in poverty or in, in paradise. But what it boils down to is what are we doing with what's been entrusted into our care? Are we using it to build our personal temporal kingdoms or are we using it for His eternal glory? That's what it amounts to. But what it's really about is a work of faith. And I want you to see this quickly here. Uh, This is Romans chapter 3, verse 1. It talks about us. It says, There is no one righteous, no, not one, no, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Because even the best we do is done for selfish reasons. But that's not the end of the story. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, reborn in Christ Jesus, recreated in Christ Jesus, to do good works which He has prepared in advance. This is about recognizing how we're walking away from the Father, 
turning around, coming home, and in that coming home, Him being able to bestow upon us the blessings of His kingdom and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can live out His will. And it forces the question, have you come home to your Father? Or are you still about building your own personal independent kingdom? It's interesting here that this guy is doing everything in his power to keep his brothers from this torment that he's experiencing. Listen, if somebody ever tells you that they want to go to hell because it's where all their friends are going to be, this shoots it down right here. huh? If anybody tells you they want to go to hell because heaven's the boring place and all the cool people are going to be partying in hell, this shoots that down right here because there's no evidence that Lazarus has anybody but that he's in his suffering by himself. And I also find it very interesting what he doesn't mention. In this culture, he would have been married with children. Where is he crying out on behalf of them? I'm talking selfishness here, folks. He enjoyed his brothers. They were escaped from his family. There's no mention here about all the other people in the world who potentially were facing this place because all he cared about were his brothers. And what Jesus is showing us here is even in his suffering, this guy could still not repent, but he continued to be selfish. And isn't it interesting that in his posture in hell, he's still trying to use Lazarus as his personal slave? Abraham sent him to bring me some water. We're talking arrogance, folks. It's an arrogance that rejects God and says, I'm going my own independent way. Verse 29, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Jesus said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now remember, these are the Pharisees he's talking to. These are the people who love money, right? And they hated what Jesus is talking about. These are the guys who are constantly demanding a sign from Jesus. Just give us a sign. Give us a sign. But Jesus... It wasn't an accident that he chose his name Lazarus for this story because if you remember the other Lazarus, there was one. There was a Lazarus that Jesus called to the grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth from the dead. And what did these religious people do at that point? They were determined to kill Jesus because they didn't like what he was doing and they didn't like his popularity. And Jesus here is saying they have Moses and the prophets. They've rejected evidence that they've So here's the deal, folks. It is not a lack of evidence that keeps people from entering into the kingdom of God, but it's a rejection of evidence. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And just one more thought. Jesus is approaching His death at this point. And Jesus will rise from the dead. And these religious people will know it. And instead of acknowledging it, they will pay the guards who were posted over His grave not to tell anybody. It's not because of a lack of evidence. 